You're listening to a sermon from Providence Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. For more information about our church, please visit church-kc.com or come and visit on a Sunday morning. Sunday School for All Ages starts at 9 a.m. and our worship begins at 1015. Thanks for listening. So, you know, I uh, power went out here this morning at 2.30 in the morning. And uh, it was out for a little while, and I was sitting there wide awake, and I was thinking, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach in the freezing cold, and I'm going to be just like Andy Reid. I'm going to have icicles. <laughs> enough. All because we didn't get six inches of snow. Some of you understand that, and the rest of you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Luke chapter 4, verses 41 through 52, that's where we will be uh, today. We'll wrap up the second chapter of the gospel of luke we've we've been in luke since sometime in november i think it's it, chapters one and two are really really long so they, they get a little shorter uh from here and i also told you all of the material in the first two chapters of luke are unique to the gospel of luke we don't find this information anywhere else and uh so today's story probably a little familiar to most of us so luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 41 down to verse 52 let's read god's word together now his parents went to jerusalem every year at the feast of the passover and when he was 12 years old they went up according to custom and when the feast was ended as they were returning the boy jesus stayed behind in jerusalem his parents did not know it but supposing him to be in the group they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And all God's people said, Father, again, thank you for your word. It is is right and it is true and it is precious. Father, I pray that I would treat it as such. And I pray that I would be a man who who rightly divides your word this morning. pray that you would enable me to, to perform this task in the power of your spirit. Day. Pray that your people would be challenged for those of us who need to be challenged. Pray that those of us who need to be encouraged would be encouraged through the preaching of your word. I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Get this out of the way. Someone once said that raising teenagers is like trying to nail jello to a tree. Let that image sink in for just a moment. Imagine trying to nail jello 
to a tree. That, that would be highly frustrating, don't, don't you agree? And anyone who's ever raised children and teenagers specifically, I think you would agree with that statement. You know, raising teenagers can sometimes be incredibly frustrating. And I, I think there's a number of reasons why that is. Teenagers, first of all, they tend to reach a place where they know it all, and mom and dad become the stupidest people on the face of the earth. I, I just, that's, at some point in time, they, they reach that place like, you're, you're dumb, who are you? And you're like, who, who are you? So that's one reason. And then another reason is, you know, teenagers, they tend to think of themselves as invincible. And, and this causes them to do some pretty foolish things. I look back at my teenage years and, and I wonder, how in the world did I even survive? And I don't even know. It's only by the grace of God that I made it to my adult years because I did some pretty foolish and stupid things when I was a teenager because I just thought I was invincible. Death wasn't on my radar in those years. And then thirdly, and most importantly, I think teenagers are difficult sometimes because teenagers tend to challenge authority, don't they? And especially the authority of their parents. And so altogether, teenagers just do things sometimes that, that make us as parents look at them and they say, who, who are you? And, and where did you come from? And, and whose child are you? What did you do with that, that nice little submissive five and six-year-old that you were so many years ago? Where did you come from? I, I think all of us as parents, I, I think we can all agree that, that we've been frustrated and exasperated by our teenage children. And if so, then in this sense, you can identify with Mary in this story. Maybe, maybe you've never seen this story from this perspective, but when Mary and Joseph finally find Jesus, imagine being frantic over trying to find your child for a couple of days. And when you, you finally find that child and you, and you find out that, well, they... they if they've kind of been disobedient to you, you're going to be upset, aren't you? I, I, for sure. And so they're obviously frustrated by his actions. And like, like any parents of a teenager, I, I think they see his actions as challenging their authority, which means if, if you take it another step further, you could say that, that in their view, Jesus has potentially violated the fifth commandment. And the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. Let, let me see if I can maybe put a modern spin on it this way. When, when my family travels, when, when we go out of town and we stay, for instance, at a hotel, we, we get up the next day and we're leaving the hotel and we're going wherever it is that we're going, the expectations are made very clear from Papa Bear. Right? Everybody is supposed to be in the vehicle at 8 o'clock. We're leaving at 8 o'clock, which actually means you're supposed to be packed, you're supposed to have done all of the business that needs to be done, like go to the bathroom, and you're supposed to be, Ron, you'll appreciate this, you're supposed to be in the vehicle at 7.55, because we're leaving at 8 o'clock, which actually means we're leaving at 7.55. And so we make these expectations very clear, everyone understands it. And, and if, you know, if someone, and invariably someone, might not you know, adhere to all of the expectations and the instructions, then Papa Bear is kind of upset because Papa Bear likes to get to where he's going. Okay? So imagine Jesus' family, they're in Jerusalem, they're in the big city of Jerusalem, and they're leaving to go back home to Nazareth. You, you reckon that maybe there were some clear expectations given? All right, Jesus, here it is at, at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. The whole family's loaded up in the minivan, and we're making our way back to Nazareth. Okay? So they, they expect him to be with them. I have, I have no doubt about that. And so I, I think it's more than fair to, to say that they see his actions here 
as challenging their authority. But as we will see, Jesus makes it very clear that he has done nothing wrong. And that, that is the rub or the tension in this text. What, why are Jesus' actions not wrong for him when they would have been wrong for any other child on earth? If this is my child, they're going to know that they're in the wrong. <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. So, so why are Jesus' actions not wrong for him when they would have been wrong for any other child on earth? That, that's the question that I think Luke actually wants us to answer. And to answer that question, we need to ask and answer another question, which is, well, well who is Jesus? Because that's the larger question that Luke wants his audience to wrestle with. And Jesus is going to answer that question himself. He is none other than the unique and the divine son of God. And because of that church, he has in no way violated the fifth commandment. Hopefully I'll show you how that is and hopefully we'll see a little bit more as we walk our way together through this text. So we begin in verse 41 and Luke says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And the, the mention of the Passover here is hugely important from a narrative perspective, a, a large grand narrative perspective in the gospel of Luke. And, and here's why. Last week, if you remember, if you were here in the previous section, we saw how Jesus was dedicated to the Lord at the temple because he was the firstborn of his family. He was dedicated with a sacrifice of redemption in accordance with the law that was associated with, you got it, the Passover. Well, immediately after we read of all of that, now we read of Jesus attending the Passover in Jerusalem with his family. So the, the Jews would celebrate the Passover every year. They, they would celebrate the Passover by taking a lamb up to the temple, having that, that lamb slaughtered and sacrificed. Then they would find a place to have the Passover meal. They would eat the lamb and the other trimmings. And that was, that was to commemorate, that was to remember the very first Passover when God saved and redeemed the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Remember, he told Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh wouldn't let his people go. And so God sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians. The tenth and final plague was God said, I've had enough. I'm going to come through the land and I'm going to strike down the firstborn in everyone's home tonight. But for you, my people, if you sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and apply that blood to the doorpost of your home, then the judge, my judgment will pass over your house, sparing the firstborn. So that, that's what happened. The people of Israel were saved and redeemed. God led them out into the wilderness. So they celebrate this Passover every year by sacrificing a lamb and eating the Passover supper. So I, I, I want you to see this picture in your mind. I want you to imagine Joseph taking Jesus up to Jerusalem and specifically while they're there, they're going on the day of preparation and they're going to go to the temple and they're going to take the lamb that the family is going to eat that night and they're going to sacrifice it. And so there's Jesus, 12 years old. This may be the very first time he goes to the temple uh, maybe, we don't know, but it's very possible this is the first time. He goes there, and there he is on the day of preparation, and he's seen all of these lambs sacrificed right there in the temple. This is the one, Jesus, who will later be called the Lamb of God by John, our, the perfect Lamb by Peter, and our Passover Lamb by Paul the Apostle. Just want you to see that picture. And very importantly, 
Luke will not record a Passover again. We're not going to see the Passover again until the end of the gospel when Jesus shares the Last Supper, which is the Passover meal. He shares that with his disciples, and then he will present himself on the cross of Calvary the next day as a sacrifice of redemption for all who take the blood of Jesus Christ and apply it to the doorpost of your lives by faith. The judgment of God passes over you as well. So just an important connection here to the Passover from a grand narrative perspective. The Passover was actually the first day of a larger feast, and that feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast was one of three major annual feasts that were associated with the Old Testament law. God's law required Jewish men to attend each one of these annual feasts in Jerusalem every year. There was no requirement for women to attend, but some women would attend, and obviously Mary is one. With this detailed church, I just want to remind you that Luke is once again highlighting for us the piety of Joseph and Mary. As we saw last week, they are faithful and pious Jews who are seeking to honor God and obey His law. And as such, we the readers of the story, we can be assured that Jesus was not raised in a home of religious rebels. Mary and Joseph obviously instructed Jesus in the ways of the law and in the ways of other aspects of Judaism. In fact, this is also highlighted in verse 42, where Luke says, And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So I draw your attention to that last phrase, according to custom. And this phrase speaks of the man-made laws of the Pharisees and the rabbis that we talked about last week. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and, and review that sermon and you can be kind of caught up. But the, the rabbis and the Pharisees of Jesus' day and even before Jesus' day, they, they had built or added their own laws on top of God's law. They had codified their own law, and I used the illustration of a fence. They just kind of wanted to surround God's law with their own man-made laws as a protection, a barrier, to make sure, to do everything they could to make sure that the people of Israel stayed within the domain of God's law. Well, verse 42 is a reference to one of these man-made laws. You'll see that Luke refers to it as a, a custom. He doesn't refer to it as a law, although the Pharisees and the rabbis said, yeah, this is law. This is a reference to one of those. According to these man-made laws, Jesus will be considered a man, and he will be fully accountable to the law at the age of 13. Well, how old is he? He's 12, right? You, you've heard of the bar mitzvah. Jewish boys celebrate their bar mitzvah, and I believe that's at the age of 13. Bar mitzvah literally means son of the law or son of the commandment, son of the law. And so the, according to the, the law of the rabbis and the Pharisees, when he turns 13, he will be accountable to uphold the law. Well, this so-called age of accountability, it's not scriptural. It's not found in God's law. It's not found in the Bible anywhere. It's part of these laws. These same man-made laws also commanded that Jewish fathers bring their sons to the Passover one or two years before the age of accountability. Well, guess what? That is exactly what Joseph is doing. When he is 12 years old, Joseph brings him to the Passover in submission to these man-made laws of the Pharisees and the rabbis. So, church, Mary and Joseph are not only faithful observers of God's law, they are also portrayed by Luke as submitting themselves to the authority of the rabbis and the Pharisees of the day. In fact, 
Luke has painted a picture of Mary and Joseph that demonstrates their willingness to submit to several levels of God-ordained authority structures. We've seen them submit lovingly and willingly to the authority of God's law. Here we see them submitting willingly to the authority of the religious leaders that God has placed over them. We have also seen them willingly submit to the authority of the governing authorities, the Roman Empire. So when was that? That's when Caesar decreed that they register for his census. And they did that by going to Bethlehem. This is a very intentional point that Luke is making for his readers. And we should see it. We shouldn't just pass right over, church. One reason that Luke is writing, and remember he's writing Luke and Acts, it's, it's one book in two volumes, but one reason why Luke writes is to defend Christianity against the attacks of the larger unbelieving world, both Jew, Jewish and Gentile, at the time that he's writing. Because at that time, at the time that Luke is writing, uh, these people are accusing Christians of being subversive to both the religious authorities of the day and the governing authorities of the day. And Luke and other New Testament writers, they make it very clear that Christians should never be seen as subversive. This is why the New Testament commands us over and over again to live quiet and honorable lives that glorifies God by rightly submitting to God and to God-ordained authority structures on earth. Sometimes that's the, the governing authorities, the religious authorities, and of course the authority of God and God's Word Himself. Mary and Joseph are a shining example of what we are to be as God's people today. Luke is very intentional in highlighting this for us. So that's out of the way. Now we go to verse 43, and now we get to the, the real meat of this text. And Luke says, and when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing, you might also you know, uh, substitute the word uh, assume there, assuming, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they, they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, if you're like me, you read this and you go, how in the world do you lose a child? How, how does this happen? How do you travel from the big city of Jerusalem and you're making your way back home? How in the world do you lose a child? Have you ever thought about that? Like, how, could, could you please explain this to me? Well, it's actually not all that difficult to, to imagine how this would happen. From what we can tell, Jesus' family probably traveled in a caravan. They're coming from Galilee to Jerusalem, Jerusalem back to Galilee. It's several days' journey by foot. And they would travel in a large caravan of other Jews, of their own family and relatives. And they would do this for mutual aid and for protection. Put your thinking caps on for a minute and think about the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. I know most of us are probably familiar with that story. Have you ever wondered why in the world does Jesus provide a happy meal for 5,000 people out there in the middle of nowhere? Have you, I mean, like, seriously, have you ever wondered that? Like, there's nowhere for them to go and get a meal. That's why he has to provide the meal. There's no Walmart. There's no Dollar General around. There's no, there's no QT. They're in the middle of nowhere. This is why he provides the meal. Well, John actually tells us in John chapter 6, verse 4, John says, 
Now the Passover was near. That's why there's 5,000 people out there in the middle of nowhere. That's a caravan of people who were going to Jerusalem. And so Jesus and his family, they're traveling in one such caravan. And these caravans would be divided into two groups. The women and young children would go in one group, and the men and the young men would travel in another group. Well, Jesus is 12 years old. He's not yet a man. He's still technically a child, but he could be in either group. He could be with the women and children, or he could be with the men and the young men. There's a whole lot of assuming going on. It it appears as though Mary assumes that he's with Joseph, and Joseph assumes that he's with Mary. And so when when they come together after one day's travel, at the end of the day, both groups come together. Mary comes up to Joseph and says, Where's Jesus? And Joseph says, well, I, th- I thought he was with you. <laughs> she says, he's not with me. I thought he was with you. And now they're going, we don't know where he is. And so they begin to search frantically for him. They go back to Jerusalem the next day. And then we read in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple. Three days. First day, they leave Jerusalem on their way back to Nazareth. They leave. At the end of that day, they discover that Jesus is missing. Then they return to Jerusalem the next day. They can't find him that night. And so then the very next day, the third day, that's when they find Jesus. And when they find him, Luke tells us that they find him sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Now, who are these teachers? Well, These are teachers of the law. These are the Pharisees. These are the rabbis. These are those guys who who have codified their own man-made laws and added their own laws on top of God's law. That's who they are. And because this is during the Passover, one of these big three feasts, annual feasts, the biggest names in Judaism are here. Some of these Pharisees and rabbis, these are the big names. These are the guys who get invited to speak at all of the conferences. This would be like my son sitting down to discuss theology with John MacArthur or John Piper or, you know, submit whatever big name you want to put in there. This is like that. And so they, they come and they find Jesus talking and, and discussing law and theology with the, these big wigs. And, and, and very importantly, Luke tells us that Jesus is asking them questions. Now, church, this is also a big deal from a, a larger narrative perspective in the Gospel of Luke because this is a foreshadowing of things to come. You're familiar with the stories. You've read these stories before and you know them, but hopefully this will help put everything in context. When Jesus is an adult, 20-some years from this moment, He will be right back here in this temple, the very same place, and he will be interacting with the Pharisees and the rabbis, the bigwigs of his day, and he will be asking them questions at that time, and they will have no answers for his questions. You know, when you see Jesus get into debates with these guys at the temple, he always silences them, almost always, and it's almost always with a question. They, They have no answer for his questions when he is an adult. And he uses those questions to reveal something about himself that is very important. Namely, church, that he knows the law better than anyone else. Why? Well, because he is 
the lawgiver himself because he is the divine and the unique son of God. And this last point is precisely what Luke wants to communicate to his audience right here when Jesus is 12 years old. He goes on to say in verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. The Greek word for amazed, it literally means to be outside of one's mind. Have you ever been outside of your, your mind? I think I have. It's a funny feeling for sure. They're, they're blown away, okay? They're, they're beside themselves. They're, they're outside their minds. They can't fathom this young boy's understanding of law and theology. This is also a foreshadowing, church, of things to come. Because later on in the gospel, people will express similar amazement when he silences these rabbis and these Pharisees in every single debate. People will be amazed and blown away by his ability to refute the teachings of the Pharisees and the rabbis. And again, there's a reason why he's able to defeat them in every debate that he has over the law. That's because he is the lawgiver himself. There is one application that I want to make here before I move on. And I think it's an important one, an important distinction for us today. And here it is. We need to make sure that we, as followers of Christ, are submitting ourselves to the authority of Jesus' teachings. His, his teachings represent the true intent and the true application of God's law. They, they show us how to love God and to how to love others. And, and I know some of you sitting there going, well, yeah, duh, Walter, yeah, we, we need to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus' teachings. I, I could have stayed home to hear that. Listen, here, here's why I say this. If we are not careful we can unknowingly, maybe unintentionally, we ourselves can argue with Jesus over the law. And you say, that's, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard, Walter. I've never argued with Jesus one day in my life. I, I understand that I, I need to submit to the authority of his teachings. What, what do you mean? Here's what I mean by that. If, if you don't take seriously his commands, for instance, his commands to, to love your enemies. If you don't take that seriously, you're arguing with him over the law. If you don't take seriously his command to pray for those who persecute you or to be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful, Luke 6, 36. If you don't take seriously his command to forgive those who sin against you, even if they sin against you 77 times in one day, and come to you 77 times and, and ask for forgiveness and demonstrate repentance. Jesus says, forgive them. If you don't take that seriously, you're arguing with him over his interpretation of the law. If you don't take seriously his command to submit to the governing authorities, to pay your taxes, to turn the other cheek, to refuse to repay evil with evil, if you do not take these commands and teachings seriously, you are no different than the Pharisees and the rabbis that he gets into these arguments with. You, you place yourself in a position where you begin to think that you know the law better than the lawgiver himself. And so church, you've probably never thought of it that way, but I think that's something that we should all think about, myself included. Just how seriously do you take the words and the teachings and the commandments of Jesus Christ? How many of you have red letters in your Bible? How many of you? 
Did you, did you notice the red letters today? It was the very first red letters right there in the Gospel of Luke. If, if, you, if you're still looking for a New Year's resolution, here's another one. Resolve today to, to make 2024 the year that you become a red letter Christian. We, we, we need to read and absorb and submit our lives and take, take the teachings of Jesus Christ very, very seriously. He, he gave them to us for a reason. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. They're amazed too, but I think their amazement is a little different from those in the crowd. I, I think their, their amazement is more like, boy, what, what in the world are you doing? Listen very clear, uh, carefully to Mary's words. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. How many Star Wars fans do we have in attendance this morning? All right, wonderful. I, I, this is for you. Literally in the Greek, you know what Mary says? She says, suffering pain, we are searching for you. And, 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 it, and it takes all the power I have not to say that in Yoda's voice. But, but whoever it is that created Yoda, they knew ancient Greek because Yoda speaks as the Greeks wrote, suffering pain we are, searching for you. She's upset with her son, and she reprimands her son in front of a very distinguished audience. She scolds him like any good mother would do. Place, place yourself in her shoes, okay? He, has, he knows we're leaving town. He stays behind. You've been worried sick now for a couple of days. You finally find him. And, and, and the, the initial relief that you found him is followed up by the, by the emotion of wanting to, to wring his neck. Can I get a witness? Okay, good. I'm not the only one. Right? Mary's there. That, that's where she is in this moment. Don't, don't miss that. I don't, I don't think there's any question in her mind that her son has violated the fifth commandment and has thus sinned. But, but Jesus doesn't see it that way. And, and his perspective is the perspective that we need to have. And he says in verse 49, here, here come the red letters, the first red letters in the Gospel of Luke. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Notice the contrast because it's really important. Jesus says, Mary says to Jesus, your father and I. Jesus says in response, why were y'all looking for me? The you is plural. And I really wish that our English translations would do a better job of letting us know when the you is singular or plural. It would revolutionize the way we read our Bibles. The you is plural. So Mary says, your father and I. Jesus looks at the two of them and says, why were y'all looking for me? Did y'all not know that I must be in my, my father's house? Your father and I have been looking for you. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? When, when I was a teenager, my mother had a boyfriend. My, my parents divorced and my father moved away. Uh, he lived a couple of hours away, so there was a void of a father in my life. And, and my mother's boyfriend, his name was Brian, he would just quite naturally try to step in and, and fill that void. And he would try to be the, the father figure in my life. And he, sometimes he would treat me 
like a father would treat his son. And as a teenager, there were times when I didn't appreciate that. And I would say, I would look him square in the eye and I would say, you're not my father. And I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. Because you're not my father and you never will be my father. And that is exactly what Jesus says right here. He's looking Joseph square in the eye and he says, you are not my father. Now, I, what I said to Brian, I said disrespectfully. I'm, I'm not going to place that on the lips of Jesus. He doesn't say it disrespectfully. But in a very real sense, Joseph is not his father. And Jesus is making that very clear right here and right now. According to Jesus' question, Mary and Joseph should have understood this. They should have known. He says, did you not know? This anticipates a positive response, a, a, a yes. In other words, they should have known that he must be in his father's house. So he says this while he is in the temple. Well, the temple is the dwelling place of God on earth. And so make, make no mistake about it. Jesus, in this statement, the very first words that we hear of him, he identifies himself, identifies God as his father, which is the same as saying, I am the son of God. This is a hugely important statement, hugely important. And unfortunately, it doesn't grab us the way that it should grab us. It would totally amaze and blow away the original audience here. But it doesn't grab us the same way that it should. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that is. First of all, we live in a culture in which anyone can identify with whatever they want to be. You understand that that's what's going on in our culture today. And so someone today could say, well, well I'm the divine son of God. And most people wouldn't bat an eye. They would say, well, well good for you. you. You do you. You be whatever it is that you want to be. You identify however you want to identify. Just, it doesn't work though, does it? Because I've tried for a couple of years to identify as a multimillionaire and it just, just doesn't seem to add up in the bank account. So you, you can't just be whoever you want to be. You can't just say, I'm the divine son of God. But I think that's one reason why it doesn't grab us. But here, here's another reason. We're familiar with the story. We read these stories over and over and over again. And sometimes it's true, familiarity breeds contempt. And that can be true in our approach to the stories of Jesus. If we're not careful, we can kind of read them with a ho-hum attitude and we just kind of pass over these huge, important statements that really should grab us. And this is one such statement. So it should grab us, it should jolt us. In the Old Testament, no one ever referred to God as their personal father. Sometimes he's referred to as the father of Israel. Sometimes he's referred to as the father of Abraham. But Abraham never referred to God as his own father. This is truly unique and very unprecedented. And no one had ever declared such a thing before. And yet Jesus declares that Mary and Joseph should have known. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. We've just spent the last two chapters of Luke's gospel hearing one testimony after another as to Jesus' identity, and they've been around for all of that. But we read in verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. For whatever reason, they couldn't connect all of the dots. But Jesus makes it clear they should have. They should have known, but they couldn't do it. So then we read in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was 
submissive to them. Don't miss that. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Luke, Luke makes it very clear that Jesus was not a rebellious teenager as, as far as it goes. When they returned to Nazareth, he continued as the obedient child that he should be, submitting to the authority of Mary and Joseph, demonstrating once again that Christianity does not seek to subvert the God-ordained authority structures that God places in our lives. And then Luke tells us that Mary treasured all of these things. I wonder if she kept a diary. I wonder if she, she wrote all of these things down. And then I wonder if she's one of the eyewitnesses that Luke uh, worked with when he was doing his research for this story. I will never know on this side of eternity. Let me, let me conclude with this, church. As I said at the very beginning, the central question here is simply, who is Jesus? And really, the, the first two chapters have, have been dedicated to answering this very question. Think about it. So far, Luke has given us the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, Gabriel, the archangel, the other angels, the, the heavenly host. He's given us the, the testimony of Simeon and Anna. One commentator says, Luke has assembled the testimony of heaven and earth to bear witness to Jesus' identity. But at the end of chapter 2, one witness remains, and that's Jesus Christ himself. And here we have the only recorded words of Jesus from the first 30 years of his life. Think about that. He said many other words, but these words that we have right here are the only words we have recorded from those first 30 years. And the only words we have during that time are of him claiming to be the divine and the unique son of God. The question is, do you believe what Jesus has said about himself? C.S. Lewis, the great Christian philosopher, once said that when it comes to Jesus' claims, we have three options. And he said this very famously. Maybe you've heard this before. C.S. Lewis said, when it comes to Jesus' claims, these marvelous claims, we have three options. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. And I want you to hear this lengthy quote from Lewis because he says it far better than I could ever say it. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say, Lewis says. Then he goes on and he explains. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. C.S. Lewis was a man before his time, wasn't he? There are probably some people out there today who will identify themselves as a poached egg if they could. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. What do you mean? Well, think about it. If I come along and I say to you, I am the divine son of God, that's either true or it's not. And if it's not true, then that means I'm either intentionally lying about it, Okay? which disqualifies me from being a great moral teacher, or I'm just plumb crazy. 
And that also disqualifies me from being a great moral teacher. So Lewis is saying, the one thing you cannot say is that he was just a great moral teacher. No, no, he's more than that, far more than that. You must make your choice, he says. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Somebody say amen. Amen. Those are not divine words, but pretty close by C.S. Lewis there. I'm, I'm certain that most of us in this room, especially you frozen chosen today, that most of us in this room would call Jesus, misunderstand what I'm about to tell you, we have many good reasons to believe the the enormous and staggering claims that Jesus made about himself. But the final question that must be asked and answered is, does my walk with God and my life prove the confession of my lips to be true? Again, the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6, we read this earlier in the scripture reading. Jesus says to people who would consider themselves to be his followers and his disciples, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do, and not do what I tell you? The one who hears my words and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And again, we're familiar with the, this story and this reading here, but sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes these words of Jesus, they can just go right over our heads. And we not really wrestle with what he's saying, but in context, this is what he's talking about. Anyone can say, Jesus is Lord. Anyone can say that. But the proof is ultimately in the pudding, isn't it? And so let me end with a challenge to each of us here today, myself included. And so the challenge is to to ask of ourselves, does the walk of my life prove the confession of my lips? Do I take the teachings and the commands of Jesus seriously? Those red letters in my Bible. Am am I seeking to live according to the red letters of my Bible? The truth is, church, if we don't take those teachings seriously, if we don't take them to heart, as I said before, we're no better than the Pharisees and the rabbis of his day. We place ourselves in a position of saying, I know the law better than you, Jesus. May that never be said of us here Providence Baptist Church. Father, thank you so much for the the opportunity that I have to stand here and to proclaim your word. And I pray that that the message today was was right on from from the text that was right and true. Pray that it would hit the intended target. Pray, God, that, that each of us, and myself included, that we would take your words seriously, your teachings, your commands, the radical ones, the ones that are really hard for us to hear sometimes and 
to really apply in the world in which we live, but that we, we would really take them seriously. And that we, we would seek every single day of our lives to, to, to live lives that, that match the confession of our lips. And that we would demonstrate with our lives that, that you are, in fact, Lord and God. Pray that for myself. Pray that for my hearers today. I pray all of these things in the magnificent and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. And invite you to stand, church. We're going to sing one more song. And it's a, it's a song or it's a time of invitation. And so, you know, if the Lord is speaking to you and you feel prompting and you feel like you should respond, then by all means, respond, whatever that is. You can respond where you are. You can come up here to the altar. You can come to me. I'd be happy to pray with you. But whatever it is, you know, if God's prompting you to respond to something that you've experienced in our service here today, then by all means, don't leave this place today without responding. And maybe there's someone who's never said, Jesus is Lord. Why not? What are you waiting for? It's the greatest decision you could ever make. If you want to make that decision today, I would love to be a part of that. Whatever's on your heart, I would encourage you to come.